You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. This week, SpyCast is brought to you by a new sponsor, SaneBox, and the podcast Hackable from McAfee. You hear more about the newest members of the SpyCast family a little later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Sean McFate, who's an author, novelist, and expert in foreign policy and national security strategy. Currently, he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a professor of strategy at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and the National Defense University. His career began as a paratrooper and officer in the United States Army's storied 82nd Airborne Division, which is almost as good as the 1st Cavalry Division. He served under Stanley McChrystal and David Petraeus and attended elite training programs such as the U.S. Army's Jungle Warfare School in Panama. After this, he became a private military contractor in Africa. Among his many experiences there, he demobilized warlords, raised small armies, worked with armed groups in the Sahara, transacted arms deals in Eastern Europe, and prevented an impending genocide in the Great Lakes region. He also authored the nonfiction book The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order, which details how war is changing in the 21st century, and two novels, Shadow War, and his newest novel, Deep Black, part of the Tom Locke series based on his own military experience. So welcome, Sean. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. It's great to be on SpyCast. So this is, a, coincidentally, uh, you're here at a time when military contractors have been in the news lately. Um, every time Eric Prince decides he wants to say something, he gets an audience, uh, whether that's directly related to his sister being in the cabinet or not, we can have a conversation about later. <laughs> but let's jump right in specifically in talking about you. So after the 82nd Airborne, what led you to private military contracting? Why, why did this seem like a natural next step for you? Well, honestly, it wasn't my natural next step. I was uh, an officer and paratrooper in the 82nd for many years. I got out in 2000 thinking that the world was nothing but peacekeeping. Little did I know. <laughs> and I um, went to graduate school. I was at Harvard. And I was there for about a, like a couple months when I decided this was like the worst mistake of my life. I was doing eco economics and problem sets and graphs and calculus, God forbid. <laughs> and I was running across campus one day, across the yard, and I got this phone call randomly. 
and uh, it basically went something like this. You don't know who, who we are, but we know who you are. We are a company, and we have to raise an army in Africa somewhere, and we'd like to talk to you about that. Would you come visit us and maybe take some time off from your grad school program? And at that time, I was preparing for an economics midterm, and I thought, midterm, Africa raising armies, I'm sold. So uh, off I went, and that's how I began. And so we, we, in your bio, I talked about some of the stuff that you did, but what, what was the dramatic difference that you experienced, and maybe it wasn't dramatic, between you know, the old traditional ways the army is set up, even, you know, yeah. even the 82nd being an elite unit, being an airborne unit, it's still the United States Army. You know, what, what, what kind of uh, an eye-opening experience was contracting, especially in Africa? Well, it was hugely different than the military. Uh, I mean, I, I joined a firm that was a private military company, and I worked initially on U.S. government contracts in Africa, doing things that traditionally the CIA or special forces types of units would do. That stuff is more and more outsourced. And then after that, I worked for other, uh, other employers, shall we say. Um, there's a huge friction between the world of, of soldiers and private military contractors, many would say mercenaries. And this friction is ancient. It goes back to the Middle Ages and right. stuff, right? So it's like knights versus mercenaries, where a paratrooper or a soldier, they serve out of duty for honor and sacrifice. Then contractors take all that and turn it on its head. They do it as a transaction. It's right. sort of like marriage versus a whore. Well, I mean, we seem to be in this world of euphemisms now where it's not assassination, it's targeted killing, where it's not torture, it's enhanced interrogation. Right. It's not mercenaries. Yes. It's contract. I mean, it, it, this is this is old school mercenaries. I this mean, these is, are people yeah. who are paid to fight. You're talking about armed civilians doing military things in conflict zones. That is what a mercenary does. Well, and this is increasingly how foreign policy is conducted today. I mean, we don't we don't have the military to do everything that we're trying to do around the world. I mean... I think that the, the, the statistics are interesting. In Iraq, half of the personnel in war zones were contracted at one point. In Afghanistan, it was closer to 70%. Is, are those correct numbers? Those are correct numbers. And just to be clear, though, only about 15% of those were armed. Okay. So most of them were just like cooking food, repairing vehicles, totally innocuous. Um, but still, 15% out of you know 100,000 troops is pretty large. So it's and what other people don't know is that this is now being replicated by others around the world. This is one of the secret yeah. trends in international relations that few understand. Well, that's the thing. Like I, I, you know, there are all these people out there who's turned into a career of being a mercenary. Yeah. And if the United States, which again a number I saw in fiscal year 2014, the Pentagon spent 131 billion dollars on contractors, yeah. which is more than twice Britain's entire defense budget. Yeah. All of a sudden, if we decide, you know what, we're not going to use them anymore, you have a bunch of people whose career is to be a mercenary right. and no one to pay them anymore. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily just going to retire. They're going to go find someone else to work for. Well, here's the issue with that is that, you know, I was at Harvard. My advisor was Ash Carter, who became now the Secretary of Defense. And I remember talking about this in 2004. Like, what happens to all these contractors once we're done using them? And he's like, well, they'll go home. And he's thinking of it like they're cheap army reservists who will just simply reintegrate into the workforce, but that's not what they are. Uh, when I was in this industry, most of the people next to me weren't Americans. 
they came from all over the world. They came from Ghana, Mexico, Philippines, you name it. And after U.S. contracts dried up in Afghanistan, they went to other conflict markets. And that's why we're seeing a resurgence of, of mercenaries today. And in some places, they're doing good work. I mean, uh, yeah. fighting in Nigeria against Boko Haram. Yes. But in other places, not so much, like Russian mercs in Ukraine. Right. Or, you know... Companies, you know, like oil companies and others using private military contractors to provide security for their forces. I've done some of those things. So I, I, want to, I wonder what would happen if a Russia, a China, a Pakistan offered our mercenaries working for us a better deal. Essentially, yeah. money is the key factor behind this, right? So yeah. if our guy, or what if Al Qaeda offered our mercs a better deal? I mean, you think there would be a bidding war for the loyalty of the force, right? The loyalty of the 101st and 82nd Airborne and the 1st mm -hmm. Cavalry Division, I'd say 99% of that loyalty is because it's the United States and loyalty to the flag. Right. This is loyalty to the dollar. And, yeah. You know, that seems to be problematic. I mean, that kind of like, you've t you speak about this in articles and stuff you've written about where warlords in Africa were essentially buying each other's yeah. forces. So this is the... Private military warfare changes war as we know it because now suddenly you have like traditional military strategy meets the rules of Wall Street and the marketplace. It's like Adam Smith meets Clausewitz. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of evidence of this in the Middle Ages because mercenaries were very common. Even you know, popes hired mercenary armies. And what would happen often is that there would be bidding wars for mercenaries, or they engage in racketeering. Uh, they'd show up to a city like Siena, Italy, and say, you have three days to cough up all your gold. And if you don't, we're going we're gonna to sack your city. And they spend three days, and they cough up all the gold, and, uh, they say, and the mercenaries say, thank you very much. We'll be back next month. And so we see all this in mercenary warfare, and this is the world that we're moving towards. Well, and you could, again, putting ourselves in the other guy's shoes, you can understand a little bit about why it's being done. There are, there's significant benefits mm -hmm. for using mercenaries. Uh, think of the United States. You know, there are mercenaries that are American citizens but not in the military right. that are being killed all over the world. That's right. And they're not getting write-ups in the papers. They're not getting military funerals because they're not soldiers. So contractors don't count as boots on the ground, and they don't count as casualties. And that is very attractive to politicians who are trying to keep body count down. And so one of the things about why, you know, there's many reasons why mercenaries are coming back in the world. I mean, one reason is if you're, if you're an oil company and you want to rent an army, you can now do it. Or if you're a country like Nigeria and you want to rent like attack helicopters, but there are mercenary attack helicopters. And even all, you know, jihadis uh, have, there's jihadi mercenaries now. Uh, Al-Nusra Al Front hired like Sunni Muslim mercenaries out, out of Uzbekistan to, to do special forces type stuff. The question is, why does countries like Russia and America use mercenaries? They do, we do, is because they offer a lot of plausible deniability. And in a world where we live in an information age, plausible deniability can be more powerful than firepower. Well, there's also no rules of engagement. There's no UCMJ. Yeah. You know, they, you can send them in and do things that you normally wouldn't be able to do with your regular army forces. That's why Nigeria turned to them. Uh, so, so for six years, the Nigerian military could not deal with Boko Haram, this jihad, this horrible jihadi uh, terrorist group in northern Nigeria that kidnapped and 300 schoolgirls and basically raped them 
horribly. And, you know, for six years I couldn't do it. So Nigeria secretly in 2015 hired mercenaries to push them out of Nigeria. And these mercenaries didn't show up with Kalashnikovs. They showed up with, again, MI-24 hind helicopters, which are flying tanks, and special forces units that were very, very good. And they cleared out Boko Haram in weeks. And uh, there's a couple things to know about mercenaries. One is they're very good. Despite what the media has to say, they can be very effective. Two is that they can do things that you don't want your soldiers caught doing. And uh, I'm not saying that's morally good, but they have, I guess, utility there for some policymakers. So we talked about mercenaries being back in the news, and that's because the former head of Blackwater, Eric Prince, was in front of uh, not only the media, but also uh, members of the government talking Mm -hmm. about uh, his fix Mm-hmm. And I kind of put that in quotes mm-hmm. uh, for Afghanistan. You know, the, the, you know, the longest war in American history. We've been there since 2001, of course, spending hundreds of billions of dollars along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his big idea is that we could pull out U.S. soldiers from mm-hmm. the quagmire in Afghanistan and solve it with essentially a mercenary army. Um, and some of his models for this are interesting. I'll let you talk about that. But what do you think of this idea? Does it make any sense? All right. Well, so I've known Eric for years. Uh, he and I are in the same business, and uh, I've done this in Africa, like raise armies. And so, as a private military contractor, former one, uh, some say ex-mercenary, I cannot think of a worse solution for Afghanistan or for the United States of America. What he's proposing is neo-colonialism, that we are going to, quote, fix, as you say, mm-hmm. Afghanistan by, in his words, appointing a viceroy. Yeah, even brings up the British East India Company, yeah. which is about as toxic as it gets, right? I mean, which doesn't play well in South Asia right, either, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he's actually, you know, pipping this idea around Washington, D.C., around town, that this American viceroy w- would have absolute authority over the government of Kabul, would sort of be a dictator, and would be backed by a mercenary army. His words, not mine. You, you know, modeling it on the British East India Company. And we can think of, like, the 1857 massacres and all these horrible things um, because mercenaries are really hard to control. And he's, give, he's painting this blue sky picture, couching it as a cost-benefit savings. But as we all know, war is not the same as a business. War is a, a lot more messier and morally messy. We talked about harder control, and that's another thing, another reason that private contractors are in the news now yeah. is the uh, Blackwater soldiers in Iraq, soldiers, mercenaries in Iraq, yeah. who had been prosecuted for essentially massacring Iraqi civilians, right. uh, had their, uh, their convictions overturned, what, two weeks ago or something, yeah. by courts. You know, what, what, can we talk a little bit about that? Because we mentioned the fact that they're not under the UCMJ, for those right. that don't know. You know, this is, these are the laws that the American military operates under, where regardless of things like Milai and others, massacring civilians is a big no-no yes. under the UCMJ. And there was always this conversation about whose laws do the mercenaries fall under? Yeah. Can they be prosecuted by the Iraqis? Well, we're not letting Americans being prosecuted be prosecuted right. by the Iraqis. Do we prosecute them? Well, we did, and now it's been overturned. Talk a little bit about this. So it's a good point you raised. So one of the, the low points of the Iraq war was, one is Abu Ghraib scandal, and the second was the Nisor Square scandal. And Nisor Square happened in 2007 when a basically a squad of Blackwater 
contractor slash mercenaries massacred 17 innocent Iraqi civilians in a traffic square in Baghdad. And this blew up internationally. This was just, a you know, and this is on the eve of our Hearts and Minds campaign. Right. Right? I mean, it's terrible. Uh, and it was, it was also a domestic scandal, too. And Eric Prince was, you know, brought up in front of the congressional hearings and was asked, you know, what happens when your Blackwater employees murder people in foreign, you know, murder civilians in, in war zones. And he said famously or infamously, well, congressmen, they get aisle or window, which means they go home and there's nothing. Years later, they tried, the American court system tried to prosecute these four contractors, but there are so many problems with war zones and right. evidence that it really can't. And the bottom line is, is that we have, there is no... Uh, oversight and legal mechanisms. We have more regulation about the production of toys in the United States of America than the outsourcing of firepower. And it's even worse at the international law level. Before we continue with Sean, let me ask you a question. How many emails do you have in your inbox right now? A hundred? A thousand? Twenty thousand? If your email is anything like mine used to be, the answer is too many. But here's the thing. Even though I knew I wanted to do something about it, I didn't know how. I knew I'd miss something important if I just deleted them all, and God, would that be glorious. But there are too many emails to go through at one time. Then I finally learned the secret to reaching inbox zero and taking back my email sanity. It's called SaneBox, and I can't recommend it enough. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all the trivial stuff to a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. So good. There are also sane reminders. SaneBox automatically reminds me when I need a follow-up email, so nothing falls through the cracks. You can also snooze emails. Great way to defer or de-emphasize less urgent emails, and I can read them later. SaneBox works on top of your existing setup, You don't have to change your habits by creating a new email account or downloading a new app. SaneBox just makes your existing one awesome. Because we could all use more organization in our email life, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit SaneBox.com slash SpyCast today, and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't even have to enter your credit card information unless you decide to buy. So there's really nothing to lose. Check it out today, and let me know if you love the black hole and reaching inbox zero as much as I do. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash spycast, sanebox dot com slash spycast. I'm, I'm a military historian. I remember lots of books read in grad school talking about how the definition of a state is the monopolization of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's only one definition, but it's one that's yeah. very popular. Weber's definition. Yes. Um, and uh, that seems to have been thrown out the window at this point. We're, we're just, you know, you don't need to be a America or a Russia or one of these great right. powers, one of these highly industrialized nations to have massive amounts of firepower at your fingertips. Right. So, you know, the the classic Weberian definition of a state, <clears throat> that entity which has a monopoly of force in its territory, we're getting to an era now that anybody who's super rich can do that. We're getting to an era now anybody who's rich can buy the means of war, can wage it for any reason they want. Oil companies, oligarchs, terrorist groups, narco, you know, groups. 
And that will fundamentally change world order. The problem we ha I have with this is that there's nothing that's going to stop this from developing in the 21st century. I mean, you, even if we wait for a new Geneva Convention, which probably won't happen in our lifetime, how would we enforce it? I mean, right. who is going to go into Nigeria and arrest those mercenaries? Because those mercenaries will shoot your law enforcement dead. And this was the case, again, in the Middle Ages, which was, you know, awash in mercenaries, and partly why the Middle Ages was so in perpetual conflict, or what I call durable disorder. Well, what was the solution there? Well, we don't. This is a mystery. <laughs> yes. So I, uh, I, you know, before I took the novel writing, I wrote academic uh, books, uh, nonfiction. I mean, there was in Europe there was a Thirty Years' War, right. uh, which was a brutal, bloody war that uh, massacred you know, a fifth of European population. Mercenaries were rampant in it and mercenaries you know know no laws ultimately and between contracts became marauders and engage, engage in rape and pillage and everything else you can imagine and I think in my opinion is after the, tr the peace of Westphalia in 1648 everybody was just tired of mercenaries yeah. and some other things happened in the decades to follow like in Prussia where they started states started to monopolize force invest in standing armies and literally outlaw mercenaries. So much so that by the 19th century, mercenaries were gone. That trend, I mean, Peace of Westphalia is a great example. That's kind of the beginning of modern diplomacy. Yeah. That trend was for nebulous areas to become nations, right? You start right. seeing the nation states forming. Yes. The trend now, though, is almost extra nationalism where people are now looking at national borders as less of an impediment yeah. to spreading force. Yes. So we seem to be moving in the opposite direction. Well, we're, we're unraveling is what we're doing. We're, we're devolving away from the Westphalian norm and we're returning actually to normal. I think normal is messiness. If you look at most of military history, it is, it is not sort of states with a monopoly of force. It's all sorts of actors like popes, rich families, city-states. Anybody who could afford their own militaries would rent them because renting is cheaper than owning, just like a car. And I think we're going back to that era now. And if you look at you know borders today of the Middle East and Africa and South Asia, country, states are becoming more like counties in the United States of America. They, they're in charge of the bridges and roads and their right. land, but they don't really have absolute control of who comes through in and out. And I think that's, that's the you know, globalization and other factors have contributed. But I think we're moving to an era where things are messy. You brought up an interesting point, just kind of as an aside, as you were talking, was that these are cheaper alternatives mm -hmm. yes. than having a large standing army. We spend you know, almost a trillion dollars, I'm rounding up, but almost a <laughs> trillion dollars a year on our defense budget. Yeah. Does Prince have a point, just a bad one, but does he have a point that this would be a much, much cheaper alternative, you know, maybe we set it up in a different way, but a much cheaper yeah. alternative for these kinds of, if not peacekeeping, the nation building, you know, I, we're still in Bosnia. I was deployed to Bosnia more than 15 years ago, and yeah. they're still there, still there. doing yeah. stability force operations. Right. This, this seems like something that could be farmed out yes. and then save the U.S. military for fighting the war war, yeah. Yeah. whereas others are doing the peacekeeping or stability operations for it. That's right. So not everything Prince is saying is um, bat whatever crazy. Uh, you know, contractors are cheaper, generally speaking, and they can actually be better. 
Uh, when I was in this industry, I, I was not stuck to U.S. bureaucratic models of how we do business overseas. I could reach out. I could talk to people with U.N. experience, with South African experience, other people's experience, and we can create innovative solutions, and we can engage in innovation. Um, also, contracting, it's not just the way of the future. It's actually here a lot more than your average person understands. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's already changing war without us even knowing about it yet. Where I depart with Eric Prince, though, is you can't scale a mercenary force as quickly as he wants to. And also, where is he going to... He's making this pitch that we're going to take an American sergeant out of the U.S. Army. You know, we'll take a U.S. Take a US Army out of Afghanistan. We'll replace every sergeant with a contractor sergeant. And you're like, oh, that sounds cool. But what he's not telling you is that, well, he's going to... That's going to be a Ugandan army ex-sergeant you know you know he's gonna these are not gonna be americans and it's not a one-to-one fit and there's a lot of concerns about the training the quality the vetting i mean ultimately what we're gonna see is more nisor squares happen more massacres happen and it's eventually we're gonna have to send in the marines or the first cav to uh to rescue these contractors and rescue the situation because they're gonna be doing this under the american flag and it'll be much more expensive well, and one thing that the United States Army does well is it takes random people off the street and turns them into soldiers. Yeah. And you can contract the upper levels all you want, the upper echelons, yeah. with people who have been in the 82nd or the 1st Cav or SEALs or whatever. Yeah. But how do you get the private? You know, you got to pull yeah. the per- you know, Who's going to agree to do that unless it's some schmuck off the street yeah. that they can figure out a way to train up? Well, then you do have people who right. are, you know, uh, not trained in the same kind of tradition uh, and, you know, the, the vigorous training that American soldiers go through. Or their tradition is, you know, we're Colombian Special Forces soldiers. When we go to a village run by FARC, we massacre it. That's their counterinsurgency strategy, yeah. right? Oh, or some version of that, you know, uh, you know, Sri Lankan army soldiers, for example. Um, that's not the American way of war, and that's what we're going to get ourselves into. Well, you had an interesting idea. You wrote an article recently about creating a little bit of a difference. It's a tweak, but it's yeah. a, a tweak enough <laughs> yes. uh, that I think it has some real interesting points about essentially an American Foreign Legion. Yes. You know, so the, the listeners out there may have heard of the French Foreign Legion. They even know what it is. Um, you know, but your solution is to essentially create a more publicly acceptable, yeah. uh, you know, truly volunteer force yes. uh, for these kind of long-term operations. Yes. So most people, when they think of the French Foreign Legion, I worked with them in Africa, um, who are very good. They think of mercenaries, and they think of bad John von Clamden. Well, what's it? This bad movie? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Movies like that. Um, And, you know, that's not what they are. Actually, they are part of the French army. Um, and I would I would like to investigate such a solution for America, which has a lot of places it wants to be overseas, but doesn't want to have a lot of Americans there, and it doesn't want to you know withdraw completely. So the way this would work is you'd have it be part of the U.S. military. It's a unit that's organized according to U.S. principles. It's led by U.S. officers, but the 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 enlisted come from all over the world. And it, and that way, it would you have the benefit of what contractors give, but you have control. They'd be under the UCMJ, uh, and it wouldn't be this free for all of contractors who could come, go, flip, go rogue, etc. What? How would you solve the loyalty problem? I, and I think that a lot of people, their knee jerk reaction, or, or even their their long thought about reaction to this, will be, well, 
you know, we see our friendly forces turning on us, especially in areas of the yeah. Middle East, you know, where you can't necessarily vet people as, as well as you could otherwise. Yeah. Well, the French Foreign Legion has solved it. Uh, they've been doing this for quite a long time. I think we can imbue their model. For the French, it's also used as a pathway for French citizenship after so many years of service, and that also gives some loyalty. And already we do this in the U.S. Army. You can enter the U.S. Army as a foreign, like, you know, a Mexican citizen serve for so many years and, and be in a pathway towards uh, U.S. citizenship. And we've been doing that for a very long time. So what, what would make this less expensive than contracting? Because we talked about the real plus about contracting is essentially it's a rent-a-soldier. Yeah. It sounds like a permanent stood-up army. Like yeah. how how is this solving any of the financial problems associated with the standard? Well, this would be much uh, this would be much cheaper. Like an American force would be much cheaper than what we're doing right now in Afghanistan, which is the sort of the Cadillac version of right. of Afghanistan. Um, but it's not the free for all that Eric Prince is talking about. I mean, what Eric Prince is talking about, it's like can you imagine having some a contractor repair your home and you going with the lowest bidder? But ultimately, it takes twice as long and costs four times as much because they've made you have to fix all their mistakes. That's what he's proposing, the lowest bidder model. The, what I'm proposing is something in between. Um, and it, and it, I think you, know, you get people from parts of the world where serving in Afghanistan straight for three years is really not a hardship duty at all. Um, but they have interests in long-term American interests. So that's why I'm hoping that there could be a feasible model. I can't imagine this idea is very popular with the people who do mercenary work today. This actually yeah. seems like a way to potentially slow down yes. this growth of mercenaries around the world. Well, you, international law can't fix it. The only way to regulate the mercenary world is either to have those who – the big super clients like United States of America or maybe the United Nations if it wants to you know, contract some of its peacekeeping uh, – they can set the rules of the road using their market power. Um, you can maybe go after clients uh, who hire mercenaries, but how do you do that after the clients in Nigeria or the UAE or Russia? So um, overall, I think we're going to see just more mercenaries in the century ahead of us. Well, we talk a lot about military mercenaries, about you know, contractors who are, who are doing war fighting. Yes. Uh, we haven't even mentioned... Uh, private contracting of intelligence work. That's right. And there's a lot uh, which of Which is a massive yes. part of this This also. Yes. And there's absolutely no way today yes. that if you fired all the people working on contract for the American intelligence community that it could do its job. That's right. It is humongous right. today. And that the trend has gone up and down since 9-11. But yeah. do you, which, what direction do you see that trend going in? Uh, it's going up. I mean, so, you know... Um, by the way, I, I, I try to expose these worlds, pulling back the curtain on the secret world of, of mercenaries as well as private intelligence world through fiction. That way I don't get in trouble. Right. <laughs> so uh, my fiction, uh, the Tom Lochner series, goes into all these things, including private intelligence. And this is sort of autobiographical. I, after I left the world of private military contracting, I went into private intelligence. And where, those, where that world is, what that world looks like, is these niche boutique firms in either London, New York, or Washington run by usually ex-agency um, case officers, MI6 types, from di- director of operations, uh, not, 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 intelli- not director of in- intelligence types. Right. And they, they do political risk analysis for the Fortune 500, uh, a lot for extractive industry, 
And because extractive industry, they have no choice as to where they go. They have to go where the oil rig is right. or the mine is. And these are long-term investments, and they need to know what goes on in the governments there. And so private intelligence goes there, sets up human networks, gives intelligence, and does what they call shaping operations, which right. crosses lines. Well, I think there's a dramatic difference between the more regulated contracted intelligence like a booz allen yeah or like what Lockheed, like all the crystal city sure buildings right and right. these private boutique firms yes and there's a dramatic difference I i'm think. not talking about the booz allens yeah. the saic's who right. do outsource the the uh they do intelligence analysis i'm talking about the collection and analysis for non-government entities which are either usually really rich people or fortune 500 companies uh and not only do they collect but they also do things uh, to shape, again, the outcomes of desired events. They whisper campaigns, media, other things like that. Sometimes straight-up kinetic covert action. And, and, as, yeah. and blackmail yeah. and, and things that might arguably cross the uh, Firm Corrupt Practices Act, uh, which makes, you know, their, you know, they call them transactional fees, transactional things like that. It makes them very attractive to especially American and British companies who cannot touch that type of stuff. Well, and, and all these people, if they're ex-agency types or ex-MI6, they've all signed every secrecy agreement known to man. Yes. Um, but they're using the however many millions of dollars of training they received in the United States intelligence community yeah. to now sell that to the highest bidder in many respects. Well, also they use their their friends who right. are former chief of station and now they're retired in place. They have a whole network of fixers that they use. I mean, the thing about both the private military world and the private intelligence world is that they offer a lot of plausible deniability, which again is very, very attractive. That's a, that's a, that's a commodity you can sell for a pretty high price today. We'll have more of a Sean in a moment, but have you ever wondered what a hacker might be able to see while you're on a public network? How much of your life is vulnerable to this kind of an attack? It's easy to get freaked out by what we see on TV every day, but we can't just unplug and hope the bad guys go away. Too much of our lives are online. Would it be helpful if there were knowledgeable people who were willing to tell us what is and isn't possible? Well, the new podcast, Hackable, from McAfee, is out to show you. Jeff Siskin and his team of cybersecurity experts conduct in-depth experiments to uncover the truth about cyber attacks. This new podcast explores just how easy it is for cyber criminals or perhaps nefarious foreign government types, to gain access to your digital life through something as simple as public Wi-Fi, for instance. Look, I know the SpyCast audience is not your normal podcast audience. It's safe to say that many of you know a whole lot about this subject. So I was skeptical at first that this made a lot of sense for us. But what's cool about this podcast is that it does a pretty great job working the space between being accessible to novices with little information in the field and still providing solid information for those more, let's say, well-versed on the subject. This is information that comes straight from McAfee's experts, empowering people with specific things they can do to make their digital lives more secure. Good for your grandmothers, and good for your neighbor who works for the NSA. So how worried should we be about the threat of a possible cyber attack? Listen to Hackable, now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Well, what's keeping... Right now, you said it's companies. They're they're uh, seem to be above board. Yes, people. It hasn't necessarily. There's no evidence that this has necessarily been uh, downgrading into the uh, people we don't want using former chiefs of station. Yeah, meaning like uh, terrorist organizations or organized crime. Yeah, but 
there are some hints that organized crime organizations, narco-traffickers, others are utilizing some sure. of these less scrupulous well, uh, former intel guys. There are intel guys who are corrupt as well. I mean, that happens, right? Um, I mean, my experience in, in the private intelligence world is that they only work for well-known Western companies. They don't want to mess with China or other. And that's because they have their own bottom line. They, there's a, their only accountability is, is their reputation. And uh, they want you know, a CEO of one oil firm to tell CEO of another oil firm, like, oh, I had a really hard problem to check these guys out. They're on K Street. Trust me, they're really good. That's not going to happen if they know that you're crosswise with the U.S. government, right. that you're working with Russia, etc. Although I must say that there are these – some of these firms are deeply in bed in Ukraine and other places too. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it is a dead gray area for sure. You talked about plausible deniability. I'm wondering, is that why you went to the novel world? You went to the fictional world so that you yeah. can tell stories? That's right. I mean, we, we, have, <laughs> we have former agency people in all the time talking about the PRB and how difficult it is to get stuff through. But the novelization – of a lot of this. I mean, if you've read Jason Matthews, mm-hmm. uh, the first chapter of Red Sparrow, you're looking at it going, how the hell yeah. did he actually be able to print this? But the novelization, is that, yeah. is that what you were thinking when you were moving forward? Yeah, and so, novel? you know, after I left the private military world, the private intelligence world, I was thinking, like, this, is, this world is even more weird than most people know. I mean, most experts even know, because it's so opaque and so secretive. In fact, if you really want plausible deniability, if you want a zero footprint operation, you go to the private sector because there's no freedom of information request or like you know congressional hearing that you can overhear. It's completely hid and shielded by the idea of proprietary knowledge and trade secret, and they have a very liberal definition of that. So when I got out, I wanted to tell, share my story, and I was writing a memoir about some operations I was doing in Africa, which involved preventing a genocide in Rwanda and some other things. And my agent was like, no, 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 no. If, if you write that, Sean, you're going to be sued to death, if not worse. And so we turned to fiction. And fiction can be a magnificent platform as a truth teller. I mean, John le Carre, one of my favorite writers from the 60s, he kind of pulled back the curtain on the entire Cold War espionage war between the KGB, the MI6, CIA, and he used fiction as well, like Tinker Tailor Soldier mm-hmm. Spy. And I aspire to do the same thing. I want to write a, a fun read like, you know, um, Dan Silva or, or Brad Thor or Tom Clancy, but that is based mostly on reality. That's more nonfiction than fiction. And, and Deep Black, my latest novel, is that it tries to get into uh, what is actually going on right now in war zones like ISIS Caliphate? So there's a character in this book mm-hmm. um, that just kind of seems a whole lot like someone we've been talking about for the last you know 45 minutes, um, and I'll let people figure that out when they read the book. But are, are you pulling characters for the book from people that you've met in real life? Yeah. So this book is as faithful as I can make it. So all the characters in the book are based on people I know or have worked with, or some composite. Uh, one of my favorite, so, you know, there's the, the, the protagonist, Tom Locke, and he's a reluctant mercenary, uh, and he's got a, like a mercenary special forces team, and one comes from SAS UK, one's ex-Thai special forces, and there's some other people as well. And then another character, which is quite different, is this guy called Brad Winters, and Brad is one of my favorite 
characters. He is Tom Locke's boss. He was the CEO of his big private military company called Apollo Outcomes, uh, which some of your listeners might remember executive outcomes in the 1990s in South Africa. And this is a huge private military firm that is sort of like Blackwater meets Goldman Sachs. Right. And Brad Winters is one of these characters that people in D.C. and London and New York will know. He's like as slippery as an eel. Who who's working it in a in in Washington in, in the National Security Council in Houston oil sector in Moscow and he's, he's got fingers everywhere and he's a brilliant born manipulator um, and he, uh, he just the end of book one the Shadow War my first book without too much of a spoiler alert uh, he burns uh, he burns uh, Tom Locke very badly which is a reality of the mercenary world uh, and he burns him for money. And book two, Deep Black, you know, Tom Locke is on the run and trying to escape Winters, but Winters is up to his normal stuff. Well, one thing I thought was interesting was that there is a uh, an environment you'll deal with that a lot of people haven't tackled for some obvious reasons because there's a lot of money behind these guys. Yeah. Um, but there is this really interesting relationship with the United States government right now with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. That's right. And we've talked a lot on SpyCast in the past about like, Pakistan and the ISI and yes. some of these very unique and multifaceted relationships with mm-hmm. organizations like ISI where one day they're your best friends, the next day they're yeah. stabbing you in the back and you don't know who to trust. Yes. You kind of present the Saudis in somewhat the same respect. Mm-hmm. Um Particularly when we talk about factions within the leadership. And we've just yeah. had a big shakeup right. in Saudi leadership now. So how much of this is from your knowledge of the area? How much is this from reading the newspaper? And do you think that you know our kind of number one friend who is not Israel in the Middle East, the yeah. Saudis, is as problematic as you're presenting it in the book? Well, you know, f- curiously, um, Deep Black forecasted the current shakeup that just happened recently. Mm-hmm. Um, Deep Black. So everything in in the novels is based on actual ground sourcing or experts I know. So I knew uh, a a few very senior U.S. diplomats who had spent a lot of time in Riyadh giving me their analysis. Uh, I make very clear that there's no classified information in these novels. Um, But it's – I do talk about – the dynamics within the royal family, the threat of a Wahhabist coup, and the Saudi nuclear option, which is connected to Pakistan—all of these things, as well, all of these things are in play right now between, like, the Sadari wing of the royal family versus the more traditional Wahhabist wing, which is like Osama bin Laden's right. wing. And you know, many people Saudi Arabia as a, as a puzzle, and Deep Black tries to penetrate that puzzle. Uh, yet be a really good, fun read. Well, I think that's one of the interesting... You know, I was watching some news show uh, just a day or two ago, and there was a essentially a hit piece commercial against Cutter. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that they're now spending money on, like, MSNBC or CNN or whatever it yeah. was to do, uh, you know, very, you know, not complete disinformation campaign. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is nonsense. But it's straight out of, you know, the Saudi royal family and the kind of their allies here in the United States. Yeah. You know, do you see, I mean, of course, this area of the world is going to be problematic for the next, you know, forever. forever. (laughs) Um, But do you see the traditional allies of the United States becoming as much of a problem or more of a problem than some of the people that we've been targeting for the last couple decades? Well, yeah. I mean, not only that, but, 
really the Middle East, you know, if you if you look at it as wars between states, you miss the bigger picture. Uh, and again, Deep Black, even though it's a fun read, tries to get into the, the geopolitics of that region. And it's really, in some ways, it's an ancient religious war between the Sunni and Shia sects. And um, we we tend to look at it from a Westphalian perspective. There's just states, but that's not the case, which is why we're so perplexed. And I think, yes, we are, we are thinking that we can control, as if we're the unipower in the world, what others do, and we cannot. And uh, a lot of ISIS and al-Nusra Front and others get their support from civil society in places like Saudi Arabia, uh, the Gulf states, and others. And until we understand that, until we realize how brittle uh, Saudi Arabia government really truly is, uh, we shouldn't, um, as we say, place our bets. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a great section of the book, I'm not going to give away too much of the plot, but where everybody's fighting everybody. Yeah. And there's multiple actors involved, and everyone hates everybody else, but everyone is like, it, it's almost the enemy of my enemy of my enemy of my enemy is my <laughs> friend. That's, that's right. You know, and that's what the Middle East seems to have, uh, you know, turned into where you read news story news stories of uh, ISIS attacking Tehran yeah. and Hezbollah attacking ISIS. And right. Like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and it's very difficult to just like you did. I, I push back a little bit. It's very difficult to say Sunni Shia. Yes, I know because they're really if there are two sides, that would be easy. Right. But there are thirty. Yes. You know, and it seems to be continually getting more balkanized. You know, even. You know, it already was to a degree, yeah. but now you're getting into offshoots of offshoots That's and right. sex of sex. And, and, and the book is a little bit more nuanced about yeah. the, how heterogeneous that battlefield is. But what the, what the whole series tries to highlight is that modern warfare is more clandestine than not. And you have terrorists, you have special forces, you have mercenaries, you have other groups, and nobody knows their true colors. And you're not fighting, a, you're fighting battles where everybody's masked. And that is what modern warfare is. Um, there are exceptions like North Korea, which is very World War II with better tech. But that's not generally the way of warfare today, whether it's eastern Ukraine mm -hmm. or the Middle East or other or parts of South Asia and much of Africa. Um, so I want Tom Locke, even though it's, it's a fun read, to sort of to pull back the curtain on modern warfare and how it's changing international politics. Well, I mean, for those of us that have been studying war for a long time, I mean, this is not kind of the traditional way of, you know, yeah. one side versus the other on a battlefield. You know, the, what do you want to call it, the hybridization of war or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But you also are seeing, uh, and you can certainly speak to this as somebody that's done the intelligence side and the military side, yeah. of this old line of demarcation that always existed between these two things, you know, right. between the intel side and the military side. It's, yeah absolutely vanished. That's right. Not only that, but other vanishing points are domestic versus international politics. Um, all these things are, I mean, hacked elections in America, right? And, and of course, hacking other people's elections is nothing new, and we've, the U.S. has tried to do similar things, not not as aggressively perhaps, but um, these are old, old tricks, but we're seeing the, the breakdown of norms of warfare and international relations that we were taught in middle school, uh, that world is vanishing. Um, that world of you know, laws of war, war, people wearing uniforms, all that stuff, that's not how wars are fought today. Well, one, one, the last thing I'll say is 
I get a lot of books sent by pu publishers, um, and a lot of them, not a lot of them, there's a chunk of them that are novels, and, and some of the novels are by writers uh, who are not formers, and they're trying to write about spies, and they're not all that good at it because they don't have the background. The others are by former spooks who are trying to be novelists, and they're not necessarily all that good about it. It was refreshing, and I'm not just you know kissing your ass because you're sitting across from me, that there is a nice combination of somebody that knows what the hell they're talking about and actually can write, too. We'd like to thank our two newest members of the SpyCast family, SaneBox and the Hackable Podcast from McAfee. Visit SaneBox.com slash SpyCast today, and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. And check out Hackable through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your favorite podcast. Uh, so I, I absolutely recommend this book. Um, actually, both of them. Uh, the, original, the first one, Shadow War, but uh, the one that just came out came out a couple days ago That's from right. when we're taping this. Yep. So you'll probably hear this about a week or so after Deep Black comes out. And uh, if you want to know more uh, about kind of from a nonfiction perspective, check out The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies, and What They Mean for World Order. And this really does lay out a lot of what we're talking about here, about how war is changing and has already changed for the 21st century. So, Sean McFate, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Love the conversation. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.